This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, it's a good day at Grace Point, and I'm so thankful to have Peggy and Tony Campolo with us. I want to remind you that they will be back tonight for uh, some Q&A discussion, so 5.30 to 7 tonight. If you have a chance to come back, that's when it's really fun because he has to turn the microphone over to us, and we actually, you probably actually like that kind of teaching even better than this, so it'll be a good chance, and uh, Peggy will join him up here, and that'll be really good. I, I won't um, spend a lot of time, but I just want you to know that this is a huge influence in my life. I told the first service, and I will tell you, because you weren't here, and it's important for you to know. Scripture says to give honor to whom honors do. And uh, I think it's important for that reason. I think it's also important just so that you know the influences in my life and the influences in the leadership of this church's lives. Um, Beyond L.H. Hardwick, my mentor, father, really in the gospel, that I count people who are with me daily hear me mention L.H. Hardwick's name two or three times a day. Well, Mac, you're on the board. You hear me say all the time what Brother Hardwick said. L.H. Hardwick says, and I'm thankful to have someone like that in my life that I can still call. And, um, and a lot of things that I say, I don't say L.H. Hardwick says because I forgot he's the one that said it to me. You know, John Maxwell says the first time you quote somebody, you say, you know, L.H. Hardwick said. The second time you quote him, you say, you know, somebody said. And the third time you quote him, you say, you know, I was thinking the other day. And that is not a failure to annotate. That is that some people get in you at such a cellular level. I didn't realize it today, but while Tony was preaching in the first service, he said a couple of things, and I thought, well, that sounds familiar because I say them all the while around here. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder where he heard me (laughs) say that. He must have gotten, Paul must have sent him a tape. If it comes down to it, I said in the email, trying not to be melodramatic, that he's one of the five chief influencers in my life. He would be second. He would be second to L.A. Chardwick. And that's strange for him. He's a professor and a sociologist a long way away. We share mutual friends that we both count our dearest. But we have known one another on the surface and have been casual friends in those intersections of our common friends. But... In the absence of pastors as a young man, leaving the denomination that I grew up in, I was left to be literarily pastored. And there was a great apostle named Paul who did a lot of that. And Tony Campolo through his books, which we have some of his books over, and they don't need the money nearly as bad as you need to read them. Those books have influenced and changed my life. And so I just want to say it's wonderful to have in this pulpit one of the chief Two chief influences in my Christianity and my pastoral ministry, and that's Dr. Tony Campolo. Would you welcome him to our platform? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my wife is here, and you heard that announced, but maybe you'd like to see what she looks like. Peggy, stand up. And... <laughs> they came to Jesus, and they asked him a simple question, the complexity of which you couldn't possibly grasp because you didn't live in his time. They asked him, which is the greatest commandment of all the rules and regulations? The ancient Jews had taken the things that Moses taught about right and wrong, to do and not to do, and they had embroidered it. They had additional rules, additional regulations. There were literally thousands of them, and they had long arguments, long theological debates about which was the greatest of all the rules and the regulations, which was the most important. That's what lay behind this Pharisee saying to Jesus, Master, which is the greatest commandment of them all? Jesus answered, as you know he answered, this is the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. This is the first commandment. The second is likened unto it. 
Love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What he meant by that is uh, you do these two things and everything else will fall into place. You will instinctively do everything right if you love God as much as you should and if you love other people as much as you should. On these two commandments hangs everything. The problem, of course, is that we live in a day and an age where we're not quite sure what love is because we live in a societal culture that has romanticized lo love. So when you say love, our, our minds immediately go to romance. And I'm not against romance, please, not me. The truth is that romance is an awesome emotion. It gets you married. I mean, uh, the problem with romance, however, is that it's not a very lasting emotion. Nimkoff and Wood, in a classical study, uh, tends to say that romanticism, which gets you married, uh, tends to remain intense for about a year and a half to two years. After that, it's, it kind of fades away. You say, not if you marry the right one. Ever hear that line? The right one. You ask your mother, mom, how will I know when I've met the right one? And every mother in America answers exactly the same way. When you meet the right one, that really clarifies everything, doesn't it? That, that really makes it clear. You'll know. And it doesn't end there. Three weeks before the wedding, she lays this one on you. Are you... Jeez. I mean, it's too late. The invitations are out. The presents are coming in. You're dead beat. I don't know what it's like to come down the aisle. I do know what it's like to be up front. You look out there and everybody you ever knew is in that congregation. And you look up the aisle and this woman, dressed in white, who on this occasion you hardly recognize. And she's coming at you. And she's wearing this demonic grin on her face. And, and you're saying, God, what am I doing here? And even if you are an agnostic people, at that moment, you will hear a voice from heaven saying, too late, sucker. You know, I always say to my students, no big deal. No big deal. All that a wedding does is creates the possibility for a marriage. Marriage is what you do after the romanticism dies down. And you have to create love. Note, love is something you create. Romance is just happens. I mean, some enchanted evening, you meet a stranger across a crowded room. Remember that old song? I grew up looking across crowded rooms. It was supposed to just happen. Romance just happens. Love has to be deliberately created. And in the creation of love, the good news is, as the years go by, it can become more and more and more intense to create love. Eric Fromm, in a book that became a classic among social scientists called The Art of Loving, made the point clear. Love is something you have to learn to do. It's an art form. It's something you have to learn to do. And in that book, he cites three traits of love. And while he's not a Christian, he nevertheless says things that Christians need to hear. He dissects love and says it has these three characteristics. The first one is concentration. To love is to be able to look into another person and concentrate with such intensity that you're able to reach through the person's eyes and reach down into the depths of that person's being and connect. Connect with that person's soul, that person's essential being, the core of who that person is. I often say to married couples, when was the last time you looked into each other? Or do you just look at each other? The Apostle Paul makes a distinction, doesn't he? In the first 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says what? We look at each other as though through a glass darkly. There's a good statement. Look at a person there's a difference between looking at a person and looking into a person. You look at each other as though through a glass darkly, but then face to face. 
Jesus said in one place, the eyes are the entrance of the body, the light of the body. And if the person closes off his eyes, if he will not or she will not let you in, then that person is in darkness. And the only question is, how deep is that darkness, asks the Lord. When was the last time, if you're a married couple, that you took time and just looked into each other, allowed the energy of God to flow out of you through that person's eyes and down into the depths of that person and connect. And what Martin Buber, a Hasidic Jewish philosopher, called an eye-thou encounter, where the person is no longer an it, no longer an object, but sacred. And you've moved from having an I-it relationship to an I-thou relationship because something sacred has been touched. When I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, which was a long time ago, I've been teaching at Eastern University for the last forever years. Uh, I'm old. <laughs> you know you're old when you go to a wedding and the bride's grandmother looks better to you than the bride. You, you, you know you're old. But when I was teaching at Penn, there was this crazy lady who wandered around the campus. She was referred to as the duck lady called that way because she never stopped making this quacking sound. Quack, 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 quack. Never stopped for a moment making that quacking sound. I finished lecturing one night. I was at the corner of 34th and Spruce Street waiting for the traffic light to change. I was surrounded by students also waiting for the light to change when I heard her coming. Quack, 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 quack. I thought, oh, jeez. She came right up alongside of me. I turned, and the moment I turned towards her, she turned towards me, and her eyes met, and it was a mystical encounter with all the energy within me, with all the spiritual energy within me. I looked into her eyes. I reached down into the depths of her being, and I connected. I connected. What is even more is I felt, I feel God's spirit flowing into me from her. We, we connected. We, there was a moment of oneness. The duck lady stopped her quacking. Nobody at the campus ever remembered the duck lady ever stopping that quacking sound, never for a moment. She stopped. She looked around as though coming out of a trance, and I believe she had. And with an air of wonder, she said, it's lovely. Oh, oh, it, it's, it's really quite lovely. And before I could respond, the traffic light changed. The students rushed forward and they brushed against me and they bumped her and I saw her head snap. And she fell back into her schizophrenic state and she started quacking again. Quack, quack, quack. And she disappeared in the crowd. And I stood there. As I watched her disappear, I thought... If only I could have held on to her for a minute or two longer. If only I could have held on to her for a little longer. Maybe the deliverance would not have been momentary. Maybe the deliverance would have been ongoing. You say, hey, Campolo, you're a social scientist. Don't you believe in psychiatry and psychotherapy? And, and of course I do. But I have this to say. After the psychiatrist and the psychotherapist have done all they could, to bring about deliverance. Don't give up. There is still a healing power. There is a bomb in Gilead, says the Bible. There is a healing power that can, can deliver people. Fromm understood that. The problem with Fromm is because he wasn't a Christian, he didn't really understand where that energy came from. Actually, he does refer to the fact that he had seen Christian people who do have this kind of energy. I'll tell you. I'll tell you where the energy comes from. It's called a gift of the Holy Spirit. If you go to the fifth chapter of Galatians, it is the first of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers you to connect with a person, to love 
in a way that transcends the categories of understanding of a romanticized culture. To be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And where do you get that power from the Holy Spirit? Where do you get it? There are a number of ways of getting it, incidentally. My Pentecostal friends got it in a way that is very different than mine, but I, I affirm the legitimacy of it. I remember meeting the first Pentecostal person that I ever got to know, and her name was Dorothy, and she was in my high school, and I had never met anybody so alive in the Spirit, so energized by God, and I wanted what she had. I went to a Pentecostal church, and they called us forward, and the minister was laying hands on people, one after the other, and everybody he hit fell over. He hit people on the head, and they fell over, and it was wonderful, really. And they hit me, and nothing happened. He moved on and knocked over some other people. <laughs> then he came back, and he hit me again. Nothing. And I remember how disappointed I was because I wanted what these Pentecostal brothers and sisters obviously had. Interestingly enough, it was a Roman Catholic that helped me. He gave me a copy of a book by St. Ignatius called The Spiritual Exercises. And I, I read about new ways of praying. Ways of praying wherein I accessed the Holy Spirit. I, I'd always prayed Baptist. I'm Baptist. Hey, you don't have to be Baptist to go to heaven. Amen? But why take a chance? That's what I'd like to know. Why are you doing that? But the only way I knew how to be, pray was the way Baptists taught me to pray, in which I'd read off a list of non-negotiable demands to the Almighty, telling God a lot of stuff that God already knew. I mean, you don't think God's waiting to be informed, do you? I mean, when you say, dear Lord, Sister Mary is sick in the hospital, what do you think God's saying? Whoa. I didn't know that. Which hospital? God knows what you need before you even ask. Amen? This is obviously not a Pentecostal gathering here today. I said, God knows what you need before you even ask. Amen? Yeah, that's right. That's what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, God knows what you need better than you know what you need. I still make my request known to God. You have not because you ask not. But it's not to inform God. It's to establish dependency. God knows. You need to become dependent. That's what prayer is when you make your request known to God. But sometimes our prayer life is, is like my son when he was seven years old coming into the living room and saying, I'm going to bed. I'm going to be praying. Anybody want anything? And... And you began to realize that this kid's concept of God was some kind of transcendental Santa Claus, that if you ended the prayer with the right words, that you'd get what you wanted. There's another way of praying. St. Ignatius helped me to see that. I do it in the morning. I wake up before I have to, and I center down on Jesus. There's an old African-American spiritual that they sing in my church. Woke up this morning with my mind, stayed on Jesus. We older white people, we had our own version. I say older because they, you have all this new music. This was really good stuff here today. And these people could really sing, could they not? I don't know whether they're still here, but give them a round of applause, even if they're not here. They were really terrific. I'm an old guy, however, and if I get to heaven and they have an overhead projector, I'm checking out. You know, I mean, I... you older people, you remember this song? Same thing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Oh, my. When I wake up in the morning... It takes me about 15 to 20 minutes to get rid of the animals. You say, what animals? C.S. Lewis said, the minute you wake up, the animals come. The 101 things that you have to do that day starts running through your mind. All the things that were bothering you from the day before are awakened. The animals, you got to push them aside and create what the ancient Celtic Christians called 
a thin place. Isn't that poetic? You got to create the thin place. And in the quietude and in the stillness of the morning, you wait. You wait for the Spirit to flow into you. I wish I could say every morning it happens. It doesn't. But it happens often enough. You all know that verse, don't you? From the 40th chapter of Isaiah, where it says, they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait. But hey, when was the last time in prayer you waited and said nothing at all? Waited for your mind to clear of everything save Jesus. Waited for the Holy Spirit to invade you. Waited for the Holy Spirit to penetrate and fill you up and, and make you alive from within. When was the last time you waited in silence and in stillness? And incidentally, the next verse in the next chapter reads like this. And in stillness and in quietude, he will come into you. And that's what happens to me in the morning. I wait I wait for the Holy Spirit in stillness and in quietude. Let me tell you what happens. I, I connect with Jesus on the cross. I connect with Jesus on the cross. You say, that's impossible. He's not on the cross. The Catholics, they have that Jesus still on the cross. But we Protestants, we have a cross, but it's, we know he's resurrected. We're both right. He is the alive and resurrected Jesus but as Kierkegaard says, and as it says in Hebrews, he is the eternally crucified. You say, what does that mean? Well, to understand that, you've got to take a little trip with me into Einstein's theory of relativity. I knew that would freak you out. And only the people who watch Star Trek will fully understand what I'm about to say. <laughs> the time is relative to motion. The faster you travel, the more time is compressed. See, if you watch Star Trek, you know that the spaceship Enterprise can move forward and backward in time simply by changing its speed. That's Einstein. The faster you travel, the more time is compressed. If I put you in a rocket and sent you into outer space, traveling at 160,000 miles a second, and said, come back in 10 years, when you returned, you would be 10 years older. But all the rest of us would be 20 years older. Traveling at that speed relative to us, our 20 years would be compressed into 10 years of your time. If we got you traveling at 170,000 miles a second, our, our, our 20 years would be compressed into one day of your time. If I got you traveling at the speed of light, which we can't do, because as you approach the speed of light, your physical body would expand outward in weight and size towards infinity. I tell you that because don't let anybody ever say you're fat. Just say, I'm traveling too fast. Just, just lay it on them scientifically. But if I could get you traveling at 186,000 miles a second, all of time would be compressed into one moment. All of time would be compressed into one eternal now. You say, why did you tell us that? Because that's God time. What we call linear time, from alpha to omega, all of that is compressed into one moment with God. Jesus could say, I am alpha and omega. I am what? The beginning and the end of time. Everything happens now with me. When they asked him, who are you? He said, before Abraham was? Why did he use bad grammar? Because it would be bad grammar to say, before Abraham was, I am. He should have said, I was. Or was he really getting at the truth? That what happened 4,000 years earlier was present tense with him. It was simultaneous with him at that moment. The very name of God suggests his timelessness. I am that I am is the name of God. God never was. God never will be. Because God, there is no past. There is no future. All things happen now with God. The thousand years are as the day. The day is a thousand years. That's what the Bible says. In Revelation, it says with God, time, that linear progression of events, with God, time shall be no more. Which means when Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was and he is simultaneous with you sitting here in this room, this moment. You say, wait a minute, Camp Paulo. There's 2,000 years separating me here and Jesus on the cross back there, except at the speed of light, except in God time. 
These two moments that are separated by 2,000 years in linear time are compressed into his eternal now, which means that right now, Jesus on the cross is focused on you. He's God, and he's focused on you here and now. And if you let him, and you have to make the decision, He'll reach across time and space and connect with you. And like a sponge, he will absorb from you all the dark and ugly things that are in your life, all the secret filth. You say, there's nothing in me that needs to be cleansed. You're a liar. That's not my word. That's the scripture that says, if any of you say you don't have sin in your life, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And so in the morning, I let Christ reach across time and space and in the stillness connect with me and absorb out of me all the junk. All, and you know what happens then? The Holy Spirit explodes inside of me. You, you say, what do you mean explode? The Spirit is already in you. The problem is that sin smothers, crushes, stifles the Holy Spirit. Paul says that. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It stifles it. It's a lid on it. That's what's the problem. You see, you wouldn't even believe in Jesus if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. You don't think on Judgment Day you're going to stand up there and say, well, I uh, reflected and, and, and gave existential consideration to all the options in the marketplace of ideological ideas. He's going to say, shut up. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And it was my spirit working in you that drove you to believe in me. You say, don't I get credit for anything? No. You want credit, go to the other place. Because with God, all glory, Lord, and honor belongs to Jesus Christ the King. That's the way it is. It belongs to him. You can resist the spirit. The Bible says that. You can stifle the Spirit. You can reject the Spirit, but the Spirit is in you. But when you get cleansed, and in the stillness of the morning, when I surrender to Christ on the cross, he reaches across time and space, touches me, and absorbs out of me as though he was a sponge, as though he was a magnet, and the dirt in my life were iron filings, and he draws them into his own body. And he who never sinned, says the Bible, on the cross, what? Becomes sin. He becomes every murderer, every liar, every blasphemer, every adulterer, every fornicator, every child molester. He becomes everything that's filthy about every human being. He absorbs it into his own body. That's why he cried in Gethsemane. He wasn't afraid of dying. He wasn't afraid of the agony of the cross. He was fearful because he who never sinned would become filth. He would absorb our filth and make it his own. If you were Greek Orthodox in the liturgy of the church, they say this every Sunday, on the cross, he became everything that we are in order that we might become everything that he is. Well, that's great. And the spirit explodes inside of him. And the Bible says this, and it shall be in you like a fountain of living water. Whoa, the spirit explodes inside of you and you are now energized. And you are able to look into the partner. You're able to reach into the partner, into the depths of that person's being and connect and connect. If there wasn't any heaven and if there wasn't any hell and I believe in them both, you'd be crazy not to surrender to Christ simply to get the empowerment to love, the empowerment to connect, to concentrate. The second characteristic of, of love is concern. Concern. When the Holy Spirit invades you, be prepared. Because the things that break the heart of Jesus will break your heart. That will happen. Break your heart. I, I, have, a, I, have, I had to go to Hawaii to speak. Hey, sometimes you get Nashville, sometimes you get Hawaii. In Honolulu, if you're from the East Coast, you will wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning because of the time difference. I'm hungry. It's breakfast time back east. So I, I get dressed. I go out looking for a place to eat. And even in bustling Honolulu, it's hard to find a place open at 3 in the morning. Up a side street, there's this greasy spoon. I mean greasy. 
I go in, there's nobody in the place. No booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. I sit down. It was such a greasy... I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that's been there forever and grease had piled up on it. I, I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. This big round guy with a dirty, filthy apron, smoking a cigar, comes out, pulls the guard out. He says, what do you want? I said, a cup of coffee and a donut. He did this. He poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. I hate that. And so there I am, 2.30 in the morning. 3.30 in the morning, actually. 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating my dirty donut. And into the place come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat on either side of me. And they were boisterous. They were loud. And the one next to me said to her friend, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. The friend said, so what are we supposed to do? Sing happy birthday? Are we supposed to have a party with a cake? Is that what you want? First woman said, don't rag on me. And then she said this. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited until they left. And then I, I called Harry. That's the guy I'm telling you about. I, Called him over. I said, did they come in here every night? He said, yeah, why? I said, the one next to me. He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. I heard her say that she's going to be 39 and she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. Harry, what do you say? We decorate the place and when she comes in tomorrow night, we throw a party for her right here in the diner. What do you think? He said, mister, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. He called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. Jan, come out here. I want you to meet this guy. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. She came out. She grabbed my hand. She squeezed it and said, oh, this is lovely. You wouldn't understand this, mister, because you know what she does. But she's one of the good people in this town. One of the caring people. One of the kind people. She's always doing for others. Nobody ever does for her. I said, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, jeez. You know, so I got there the next morning at 2.30. I had bought streamers at the Kmart, strung them across the place. I bought poster board and made a, a, a sign, happy birthday, Agnes. Put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jan, who had done the cooking, had gotten the word out on the street. By 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed in this place. People, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. <laughs> 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised. They come through the door and I yell, happy birthday, Agnes, and we all cheer like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned. Her knees buckled. They steadied her. They got her over, sat her down on the stool. We started singing happy birthday. And when Harry brought out the cake with the candles, she started to cry. He just stood there with the cake. He said, okay, okay, Agnes, knock it off. Knock it off. Blow out the candles, Agnes. She tried, but she couldn't do it. He blew out the candles. He gave, me the knife, gave her the knife and said, now cut the cake. Come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment looking at the cake. Then she looked at me and said, mister, is it okay if I don't cut the cake? I said, it's your cake. She said, what I want to do if it's okay is take the cake home and show it to my mother. Can, can I do that? I said, sure. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me show the cake to my mother. I promise you, I'll bring it right back. She picked up the cake like it was the Holy Grail. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, there was stunned silence. I didn't know what to do. So I said, um, what, do you say we, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. <laughs> you know, a sociologist leading a prayer meeting in a diner with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. It was the right thing to do. I prayed that God would make her new again. 
Because I believe in a God, no matter what you've done or where you've been or what you've been through, I believe in a God that if you're in him, if you're in Christ, you become a new creation and everything old passes away and everything becomes new. I believe in that. And I prayed for the renewal of Agnes. When I finished the prayer, Harry leaned over to the counter and he said, hey, Camp Paulo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What, what, what kind of church you preach in? And in one of those moments when you come up with just the right answer, I said, I, I, I'm, I'm part of a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I thought that was clever until I got his response. He leaned over and he said, no, you don't. He said, no, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? Let me break it to you people. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. I don't know where we got this other one that's half country club. But he came to create a church that would throw parties for people who don't have any parties. You know people who don't have any parties. You know shut-ins. You know lonely people. You know people who are estranged and cut off. You know them. Why don't you throw a party for somebody who hasn't had a party for years or never had a party at all? You say, what's this got to do with Christianity? It's got everything to do with Christianity. And if you think it's just reciting the four spiritual laws and going to heaven when you die, you've missed it, baby. You've missed it. Because when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is the evidence that you're concerned, that you love one another, that you love people you didn't even know before, that you love. Herein shall men know that you're my disciples and that you love one another. Concern. Concern. I take my students, and I'm going back into the classroom this year at Eastern University. I haven't been in the classroom for 15 years. I'm going back. I miss the students, and I've got to learn from them because the culture has changed in 15 years, and they got a lot to teach me. But I would take my students to Haiti, and I, I remember taking a group of students to Haiti, and Early in the morning, the priest of City Soleil, the worst slum in the world, according to Mother Teresa, he got us up at six in the morning, and we followed him into City Soleil, this slum with shacks, filthy, dirty placed. The paths between the shacks were about that wide. The mud that we were walking in in that rainy morning was filled with excrement and garbage, and the stench was overwhelming. And out of the shacks came mothers holding in their hands the corpses of children who had died during the night. We picked up the corpses of 17 dead kids. When influenza hits your town, children get sick. They miss school for a week, maybe even two weeks. When, when children are suffering from malnutrition, when they get influenza, they don't get sick, they die. And we picked up the corpses of 17 dead children. We marched out to the edge of City Soleil where men had dug a ditch. And into that ditch we laid side by side the corpses of 17 dead kids. I stood on one side of the ditch with, with the priest and the other side with the mothers screaming and wailing and tearing at themselves. And among them were my students, my Eastern University students. And there was Josh. Six foot six, the power forward on the university team. He was tough under the backboards, they said. He was vicious under the backboards. He didn't look tough and vicious that day. Tears were streaming down his cheeks. His fists were clenched at his side. He was trembling, and I knew he would never be the same. His heart had been broken by the things that break the heart of Jesus. To be... To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be able to concentrate and to be unconsciously drawn in to having your heart broken by the things that break the heart of Jesus. And the last characteristic is this, commitment, commitment. 
When I was a young guy, I, I started preaching. I always use as an illustration that I haven't used for years, but it's a good one. It's about Blum, the greatest tightrope walker of all time. He strung a tightrope across the Niagara Falls from the Canadian side to the U.S. side. 10,000 people gathered on each side. He inched his way from the Canadian side to the American side with a roaring Niagara beneath him. When he got to the U.S. side, the people began to chant his name, Blondin, 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 Blondin. He raised his hand and quieted the crowd. He said, do you believe in me? And the crowd started yelling, we believe, we believe, we believe. He said, I'm going to go back to the Canadian side on the tightrope. But this time I will carry someone on my shoulders. Do you believe I can do that? And the crowd again yelled, we believe, we believe, we believe. He raised his hand and said, which of you will be that person? The crowd fell silent. One man stepped forward and climbed on Blondin's shoulders. And Blondin carried him back to the Canadian side. When they got to the middle, the wind began to blow and the rope began to sway. And the man reported that Blondin yelled up at me, Harry, move with me. Don't move on your own. Move with me because if you don't, we'll both go down. The point of the story is what? 10,000 people yelled, we believe, we believe, we believe. But only one really believed. For believing isn't just giving assent to a propositional truth. Real belief is a commitment. A commitment. I know you believe in Jesus. Who else comes to church on a foggy, rainy morning except people who believe? You believe. You're all believers. But Jesus doesn't want you to be believers, and that's it. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. And there's a big difference, people, between a believer and a disciple. You're a believer here today. Are you ready to make a commitment and become a disciple? To say in the depths of your being, I'll be what you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll change like you want me to change. I'm going to invite your spirit to invade me, to transform me, and make me into that person that you willed for me to be when you created me. I'm open. I'm ready. Take me. Mold me. Make me into all that you want me to be. I don't want to just believe in you. I want to be changed by you. I want to be transformed into somebody who lives out love. I'm going to be committed to love. Whenever I talk like this, people come up and say, well, I was disappointed. I, uh, you have a reputation of being a social activist, standing up for all the social justice issues. That's what you usually talk about, and all you talk about today is love. Justice is nothing more than love that's been transformed into social policy. That's what justice is. And if it's not filled with love, it's not justice. We got too many people who talk about justice with no sense of love. Amen? You know what I'm talking about. You say, but that doesn't change the world. It's the only thing that does. Change doesn't come from the top down. It comes from the bottom up. It comes from people like us who live out the love of God in the world. And that will change things. I've enjoyed sharing with you this morning. You're a lovely group of people. You are. You really are. And it's been easy to preach here. And that's interesting in light of the fact that most of you are white. Nothing against white people. Some of my best friends are white people. But it's hard to talk to white people. I mean, you can say anything in a white church. I just returned from the moon. <laughs> See, now, in my church, you know how you're doing. Even if you're not doing well, they let you know. One time I was preaching, and the sermon was going nowhere, absolutely nowhere. I'm, every preacher has that feeling one time or another. And some lady in the back of the church yelled, Help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus. <laughs> I knew it wasn't going well. 
Likewise, in my church, when you're pumping in all cylinders and you're delivering the word with power, the deacons sit right up on the right front row, and whenever you say something good, the deacons yell, preach, brother, preach, preach. I would have done much better today if I had my deacons here instead of you people. <laughs> the women of my church, they do this. They raise one hand in the air and they go, well, just like that, well. Doesn't sound like much. You get 150 women, 200 women going, well, your hormones bubble. And the men in my church, they're the best. When you're really gotten down, they'll stand up and they'll yell, keep going, baby. Keep going, preacher. Keep going. Keep going. I don't get that from white people. White people do not yell, keep going. Pe white people yell, stop. Once a year in our church, we have a preach-off. You don't even know what they are. You get about seven or eight preachers, you preach back to back to see who's best. You never say that. You say it's for the glory of God. We know what it's about. It was my turn to preach, and I don't want to brag, people. I do not want to brag. I was good. I knew I was good because the deacons were yelling, preach, and the women were going, well, and men were standing up screaming at me, keep going, Tony, keep going, baby. I feed on that stuff. The more they did it, the better I got. The better I got, the more they did it. It escalated. I kept getting better and better and better. Only people who preach understand this. I got so good, I wanted to take notes on me. When I finished, that place exploded. They were shouting and screaming and cheering. I sat down, my pastor hit my knee. He said, you did all right. You did all right, man. I said, you're next pastor. Are you gonna be able to top that? He said, son, sit back. The old man is gonna do you in. I didn't think he could, but that sucker got up and for the next hour, he did me in with just one lousy line over and over again. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. You weren't there. You have no idea what it was like. He started nice and soft with Friday. Friday, my Jesus was dead on Calvary's cross, but that's because it was Friday. Sunday's coming. Deacon's yell, keep going, keep going. That's all he needed, man. He took off. Friday, Friday, people are saying as things have been, so they shall be. You can't change anything in this world, but they don't know it's only Friday. Friday, Sunday's coming. That wasn't bad for a hunky. I got to tell you, that wasn't bad at all. Friday, Friday, darkness prevails, injustices are everywhere. Nobody seems to be loving anybody, but that's because it's only Friday. I thought I'd get something from the rest of you by now. Friday, Sunday's coming. He went on like that for an hour. When he finished, he just screamed at the top of his lungs. Friday, without hesitation, that congregation yelled back, Sunday's coming. That's the good news. When we surrender and allow Christ to cleanse us and the Holy Spirit to fill us, we will become instruments that will move forth into the world and change the world from what it is into what God wants for it to be in anticipation of his coming. That's what will happen. And then the world will get the good news. And the good news is this. Are you ready? Boy, that was weak. <laughs> Let me try this again. Are you ready? The good news is, it's Friday, but... Sing with me. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is... One more time. 
He is Lord. He is Lord. He has risen from the dead, and He is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Before you sit down, let me tell you this. I want you to make a commitment today, a commitment that arises out of concern. I would love for each of you to support a child in a third world country. Compassion International says, for a dollar and a quarter a day, we can clothe the child, feed the child, educate the child, evangelize the child. We can change a kid's life. Have you changed a kid's life this week, this year? Have you ever changed a kid's life? Here's a chance to change a kid's life. Some of you young people are here with a date. Why don't you and the date go together and support a child? Then you and your date, you can write home to your mother and say, Mom, John and I have a child you don't know about. <laughs> hey, is that worth a dollar and a quarter a day? Of course it is. Seriously, though, you can change a kid's life. Now, here's what I want you to do. Take any piece of paper you can find. Write your name and your address. If you have an a, uh, email, put your email address on it. Your name and address and give it to me. I'll be here in the front of the church. If you give me your name and address, I will hug you. Because nothing turns me on more than Christian people who are concerned about needy children in third world countries who understand that Jesus who said, what you do to the least of these, you do to me. So when this is over, come forward, give me your name and address on any slip of paper you can find, and I'll hug you. And I will send you a photograph of the child. You'll write to the child. The child will write to you. You can put the picture up on your refrigerator. You say, I'm already supporting a child in a third world country. Take a second. Take a third. You're wondering what to buy for Christmas. You know, you got a wife, you got a husband, you don't know what to buy. Give her, give her a kid. <laughs> I'll tell you this, it makes a great gift to children. You have a son, you have a daughter, and they've gotten every toy they could possibly imagine, and you don't know what to do. We've given to our granddaughters little children. We put, the, put up the money, but they get the letters and they write back and forth. I asked uh, Naomi, I said, do you, wanna, do you want us to stop this now? Oh, no, I'm going to take care of my, my child until she's grown up. What a good thing to have a kid be concerned about somebody other than self. That's a Christmas present. So give me your name and address. And again, thank you for listening to this old man do his very best, but never good enough. Thank you so much. You've been sending him my tapes, haven't you? <laughs> he sounds just like me. I sound so much like him, and I am indebted and so grateful to